word today. Uh, let it change us. Let it mold us. Let us sit in it and know what it means to have a Redeemer. In the Son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, maybe on July 4th weekend, you might take a moment or a passing thought to think about the history of July 4th and the Declaration of Independence, the Founding Fathers, uh, the the delegates of uh, uh, the Continental Congress or whoever it might be. Maybe when you think of that, you think of that 1972 musical, 1776. Did anyone forced to watch that growing up as a kid? Yes. And where Benjamin Franklin sings this solo on top of the desk. And you're like, awesome, yeah, 1776. That's what I always think of when I think of the history um, a musical that was written in the 70s. Awesome. Uh, but maybe you think of the Liberty Bell, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, the Continental Army, and George Washington. But many times we don't think of kind of the lesser players, the other 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, who were really committing high treason against Great Britain. It's interesting to read the history of some of these individuals. One, Francis Lewis, a delegate from New York. Uh, his home was burned and ransacked. Um, after his signing of the Declaration of Independence, his wife was imprisoned by the British Army and died in prison. Philip Livingston, also a delegate from New York, one of the wealthiest Americans at that time, he lost everything after his signing of the Declaration of Independence and he died two years later impoverished. John Hart from New Jersey, his home was invaded during the signing of the Declaration of Independence by the British He never saw his 13 children again after that, or his wife, and he died in 1779. All the signers and delegates from South Carolina were imprisoned when the British invaded Charleston in 1780. All of their homes were burnt to the ground. In total, nine of the signers of the Declaration of Independence didn't make it through the war. Seventeen of them lost all that they had, was burnt and taken by the British. Many died failures to their peers, despised by British loyalists. That's what it meant to sign the Declaration of Independence. How time changes our perception of these individuals, doesn't it? To us, they're heroes. To us, this why we celebrate. To us, it's fireworks and you know, whatever it might be, hot dogs on July 4th. But these individuals gave up so much so that we could have freedom. Well, there's another man that we are studying this summer that has lost everything. His family was taken. People labeled him a failure. His property was gone. He was thrown out of the city. He was next to a trash heap. And he's not because he turned against the sovereign king of Great Britain, but... People said it was because he turned against a sovereign God. So how should we view Job? Was he a success? Was he a failure? Was he a rebel against God? Or was he one with a true heart? And then in evaluating Job, how does it make us evaluate others who suffer? Or even ourselves as we go through trials? That's what I want to try to identify today. And we're going to look 
specifically at Job chapter 18 and Job 19 this morning. So I will call to your attention in your worship guide or your Bible you can took out, I'm going to read all of Job 19. It's poetry, okay? Sometimes it's nice to just close your eyes and listen to it. Maybe you want to follow along in, in reading, whatever you would like. But I hope you would pay attention as we hear from Job in Job 19. Many times people don't read scripture anymore, but let's just read it and sit in it and hear it. So Job 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my pass. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that they with an iron pen and lead, that they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. At the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So if you say, how will we pursue Him? And the root of the matter is found in Him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. The word of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us again, we've been going through the book of Job. Um, it is, um, I decided, not an easy book um, uh, to preach through. Um, I'm in it for 13 weeks, and I'm sometimes dreading I even decided to do this. Uh, but uh, it's God's word, 
And we've been dedicated to try to preach through the whole Bible as a church. And so, the book of Job it is. And uh, I've told everyone here, uh, if you have questions as you're reading through it on that bookmark there, you can send me an email and ask me a question about the book of Job. So I got my first question this week. And the first question, which is a very good question, is, why is Job so long? <laughs> a great question. Um, I hope it's not a comment on the dragging of the sermons that has been so far. But again, why is Job so long? It's a good question because, you know, if I could summarize the book of Job, you could just find it in the first two chapters of Job. Uh, you could synthesize it to those. Great guy, awesome guy, loses all his stuff, but still praises God despite of it because he trusts in the Lord and knows that the Lord is good and sovereign and is wise. Boom, there you go. I just gave you what the book of Job is about. So, if I can summarize it that much, and the first two chapters kind of show it, why drag on for 40 more? Well, the reason you drag on so long is because that is the key to wisdom books. Wisdom books make us think. Make us sit in it. And the book of Job kind of plays out what it is like to live in suffering. And that's why it's so long. It's what it means for Job to process those realities of who God is. And you see him processing it. You know, it's true to our own suffering that there's not always quick answers to pain. It's not always resolved the next minute. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes even a lifetime to even process what we have gone through. And here we see Job in his process, his crying, his yelling, his frustrations. I think James, in James chapter 5, distills Job well. You have heard, James 5.11, you have heard the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This book and all these discourses that we're going through, it's tons of laments. At times it's pathetic. At times it's poignant. At times Job just seems confused, full of doubt, repetitive, long. But through all those things, we see a man right with God. That's crazy. A man that's repetitive and pathetic and confused and full of doubt but a man right with God, as it says in Job chapter 42. Maybe when you read this poetry, it echoes your own experience. In reading it, you realize that sometimes I sound pretty pathetic. If you read my journals when my girlfriend broke up with me, it sounds pretty bad, right? If I... Talk to one of your friends when you were going through a hard time. They said, you know, he was a blubbery mess. He was repetitive. He kept on hitting his head against the same thing over and over and over again. He's confused, self-doubt, repetitive. See, Job speaks to the reality of the human condition. The length it takes us to work through suffering. 
how we are in a broken world. And in a broken world, it takes time to process and think and work through things. And many times, it does not look pretty. How great that this long book echoes what sometimes we experience. Well, what also happens in this middle section, probably the majority of Job, is a discourse between three friends in Job. Friends that provoke Job and get Job to think. And the thinking that we are in in this journey, in this drama, this play, as we saw last week, is the questions that Job and maybe we all ask ourselves is where is God? Does he care? Who is God for? Is he for the friends? Or is he for Job? If we haven't read the end, we don't really know. And so these are the questions that it provokes in us through this discourse and through this dialogue. So today, we're going to look at round two of what I'm calling the fight between Job and his friends. Remember, he has three friends that are against him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And we saw round one the last two weeks. We concentrated on Eliphaz first. And then we then concentrated last week on Zophar and Bildad in round one. And now we're looking at round two of the three rounds. Specifically, Bildad and Job in round two. And so, let's look at chapter 18. If you have your Bible, please look at Job chapter 18. It's not printed in your worship guide. And you see, then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? To summarize, stop talking, Job. Shut up. We can't say that in our house, I'm sorry. I said that out loud, but that's kind of how adamant he is. Shut up. Stop talking. And I don't get you. You don't listen to us. Job had said earlier, you just sound like lowing cattle. You friends, you don't comfort me at all. And it says, why are you calling us cattle? We are saying good things to you, Bildad, saying, you need to stop talking and hear what we say and do what we say. And then Bildad says in verse 4, you who tear yourself in your anger. You know, Job has said earlier, he says, God is tearing me. God is tearing me down. No, Bildad says, no, God's not tearing you down. You're tearing yourself down through the kind of actions that you're doing, through your own speeches. You are the one that's tearing yourself down. And then he says, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? See, Bildad is saying that, is saying, you know, the world is ordered in a certain way. There are principles that govern the world. There's a ways that it's supposed to be, not just physical properties of the world, but moral principles. See, you think, Job, that you're immune to the moral principles of the world. You're immune to the way that God works. And the way that the world is ordered and these principles have been laid from the beginning is this. You do something wrong, you get punished. You do something right, you get blessed. That is the rules of the world. And you are going against them. 
And then in verses 5 through 21, he gives a description of those, what happens to those that go against those rules. You see, the first speech that Bildad gave, he actually gave some encouragement at the end. He said, you know, there's still hope for you, Job. If you turn your life around, you'll be okay. The second time around, there's no more encouragement. There is just brutal. I mean, he goes for the jugular in verses 5 through 21. I'll look first in verses 7 through 10. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. Here, Bildad uses hunting language. Trap, snare, rope, hidden. He's saying, you know, those people that are strong and those that are loud, they are easily entrapped and ensnared in their actions. Um, I realized that a few weeks ago as I was playing paintball, um, and we had the littlest member of our paintball crew, Esther, um, and uh, I was very loud uh, when I was playing, and Esther shot me like from five feet, like right here. I think I still have the mark, Esther. It was awesome. <laughs> you see, those that think that their steps are strong and that they are okay, that they are masters, they will be ensnared quickly. The same to you, Job. You see, Bildad, in describing just how far someone goes down, is really describing who Job is, right? Saying, this is, this is you that I'm talking about. And then in verses 11 through 21, it just gets worse. He's brought to terror. It also says, the roots dry up. He's brought to fire and death. It comes to a place that his memory is forgotten. His legacy is wiped away. Even to the point people don't want to even be around his name. And then, at the very worst, verse 21, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. It even gets to the place where they are removed from God. I mean, sulfur and roots being pulled up and being removed from God. I mean, this is your first fire and brimstone sermon, folks, right here. Bildad and what he says about Job. Come on. What's so wrong about this? What's so wrong about this kind of talk? I mean, God punishes those who do wrong. That's kind of the way it works. That, That makes sense. I can find verses in Scripture that say that. Now, we're going to be hitting this principle over and over again because it's really a huge principle about Job and what they're trying to say. That truth is not... uh, The truth that God punishes those who do wrong is true. But what Job is trying to say is the world is more complex than then just making God into an equation like that. The reality of the world is sometimes the wicked get away. The reality is sometimes the righteous suffer. That is the complexity of the world that we're in. One thing that Bildad doesn't have in his worldview and his thought, that there is an accuser in this world. 
There is what it says in the beginning of Job, the accuser is called the Satan in Hebrew. There is an also another enemy in this world. Now God is sovereign over that enemy and controls that. We'll talk about that more next week in God's sovereignty. But the thing is, Bildad doesn't have a complexity. This world is broken and there also is an enemy that is working within this world. It's not simply, I do X, I get Y. It's not a simple equation like that. You know, if I gave you a true-false, if I gave you this true-false right here, is this statement true or is it false? The reason someone is suffering is always because something that they did. I think, yeah, I think most of you say that's false. I think, I, I can agree. Most people here, yeah, that's not true. That's false. So, Bildad's logic is not correct. You know, that maybe I need to listen to Job. That maybe there's a permutation outside of my worldview that Job might be innocent and still is suffering. So you would quickly say, okay, yes, it's false that just because I am suffering, I did wrong. But I do what I, I guess I won't put this question on you, but I wonder in myself, and I think this is true definitely for Bildad, would you be more prone to listen to someone that has kind of suffered in their own life, that actually doesn't look like they've arrived in the world? Maybe their children rebelled. Maybe they've experienced chronic illness. Maybe they've had career setbacks. Would you be more prone to listen to someone like that or someone that has been successful in those areas of their life? I tend to think that we listen to people that we see as successful, that have made it. It makes sense, right? If I want to learn about finances, I want to hear from someone that has arrived financially. If I want to hear about someone that is parenting and getting parenting advice, I want someone that has great kids. I wouldn't want to listen to someone that has failed. Someone that's done it wrong. Here, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, they don't want to listen to Job, but Job has wisdom for them. Because in their mind, if someone is suffering, if someone has been next to the ash heap, his Things have been taken away. Also, why should I listen to someone like that? That's someone that doesn't have wisdom at all. And I want to give this point to you. Could it be that someone that has suffered in that area might have something to offer more than someone that has technically arrived in that place? That maybe... It could be a sign if someone is suffering in an area that God is working upon that person. If I said to you, you know, I'll give you an opportunity to go meet some of the delegates to the Declaration of Independence. You'd say, of course, I would love that. I'd love to meet John Hancock. I'd love to meet Witherspoon. I'd love to meet these signers of the Declaration of Independence. But then if I put you in 1776 or 1777 and I said, do you want to meet these people? You'd go, wait a second. (laughs) 
their homes were taken away, um, their, their money, some of them died. Do I really want to be associated with such people as this? See, Bildad and his friends thought Job's suffering was a sign of God's removal from Job. Little did they know that Job's suffering was a sign of God's working upon him. I don't know if your job, you probably read lots of books maybe for your job of how to do your job better. I've read tons of books of how do I do well as a pastor? How do I pastor a church well? So I've read all these books of guys that have done it so well. And uh, last summer I read, read a good book, Sensing Jesus, by this guy. That someone gave it to me. I wouldn't have picked it up myself. Named Zach Eswine, who pastors this small church in St. Louis. And uh, he's a guy that uh, lost his first church because of some major issues in his life. Um, he, uh, um, his wife left him. He had experienced some serious suffering. And so I was like, well, should I really listen to this guy? And so I read the book and, you know, usually I'm ready, I want to pick up strategies, you know, how do I make the church grow or how do I pastor well or all those kind of things. And instead, when I read this book, I find that I was drawing myself closer to God about reading what this guy had to say. It wasn't strategies and things to do, but instead it was one that was relying upon the Lord. And I actually got more out of that book than any book I've ever read on pastoral ministry. Could it be that one that suffers and one that goes through things actually might be a sign of God working upon their lives that they have wisdom to say to us? How about people in this church I, again, I get a great opportunity to get to know people in this church and really hear their stories and where they're coming from. Some of the people you might just cast off and say, well, I don't know if I want to hear from this person. They have a depth and a richness that if you just look on the outside, you'll miss. That actually, they're not advancing in their career. Their children going through struggles is actually a sign of God really working upon their lives. And they have a wisdom and a depth and a richness that we could learn from. Well, let's see how Job responds, shall we? Job responds, I've read it to you already. The truth is, Job's response sounds very familiar to what Bildad lays out. Except, in the end, the punchline is much different. Here in verse 1 and 2, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? See, Job doesn't think he's done anything wrong. Because, well, God says he hasn't. He's blameless. So, three times. And then at the end it says he hasn't done anything wrong. And so he is responding to these guys and saying, listen, you think that what has happened to me because it's my unrighteousness. No, I have not done anything wrong. But then he echoes what Bildad says, God has caused great distress in my life. These things have happened to me. 
Behold, I cry out violence, verse 7, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. Verse 11 and 12 were so good. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me in a camp and camp around my tent. Imagine you had your kids in the backyard in a tent and you wake up in the morning and you see that all the Appleton SWAT team has surrounded their tent. And all the police of all of Appleton. In fact, they brought guys in from Little Shoot and Kakana. Everyone came in to surround the tent in the backyard where your kids are sleeping. And you said, doesn't that seem like a little bit of overkill? And that's what Job is saying. Here I am in my little tent, God. And you send the armies of you all against me. That's how I feel. This is overkill. How bad has it gotten, God? It's gotten so bad that the servants that would answer me like that now won't even look at me. It's so bad that my brothers and sisters won't even hang around me. It's so bad that my wife doesn't want to be around me. It's so bad that the kids of the neighborhood, when they pass me, when I'm next to the ash heap, go, oh, that guy, run away. The crazy guy in town. That's how bad it has gotten. See, Job is lamenting. He is sitting in this place saying, I am just in a bad place, God, and I am wrestling with you about it. But he doesn't do this. Hear me. He does not say, you know what, God? I'm going to abide what Bildad said and Zophar said and Eliphaz said. I'm just going to admit it. I did wrong. I'm going to admit I did wrong and I'm going to admit that all these things are not right and then you will bless me again. I'm just going to admit something that he says I did not do. But Job doesn't do that. He says I'm going to be honest with you God. These things are happening to me and I don't know why they're happening to me. I've lived righteously. I've done these things right. Why are these happening to me? He wants to wrestle with God through this. He wants a dynamic relationship with God. He doesn't want an equation. He doesn't want to live like Bildad and Zophar did. Oh, just follow these rules and then you'll get this. No, God, I don't want to live that way. I actually want to converse with you about why I'm in the place that I'm in. I know that you love me and you care for me. And if you do, why is this happening to me? I want to have this rather than just saying, admitting something I did not do so I can get blessed. I want to talk through this with you. And that is the dynamic relationship that Job is entering in. And hopefully, as Job talks, as he laments, as he goes to God and talks to this, it might bring up some things in you. It might go, maybe my relationship with God is not just a game. It's not just an equation. It's not just religion. Okay, this is how it works, God. It's an equation. I go to church. I give my kids morals. It will help me get ahead. See, that's what Bildad and the friends see as a relationship with God. 
But if you, anyone has lived a Christian life, I hope you realize that as much as you do all those things, things don't always work out the way you want it to. <laughs> Does it? And then what do you do with that relationship with God? Wait, I thought I brought in and I got back. Well, one way we can act is we can then just ignore those bad things that happen to us. We can get bitter. Then a relationship with God can just be superficial. Oh, I'll just listen to some worship songs. You know, that'll make me feel better. Right? Maybe I'll just, you know, read a book rather than actually dialoguing and talking with God. And then the relationship with God is not real, but we're just playing a game. The truth is, for those that their life really goes well with religion, um, they like playing the game because it's working for them. And then when other people don't play the game that they want to, um, they're like, oh, why aren't you playing along? (laughs) But truthfully, some of us, when we suffer, we just say, God, I'm done with you. I don't want to do this anymore. You are not just. You are not right. You are not sovereign. You don't really have control over the world. Forget it. That's how you act, then that's how I'll be. But Job says, I go to God. I come to Him. I don't feel like I'm being treated justly, but I know He is good. I'm trying to figure out what is happening. And this is the tension that He lives in for many, many chapters. And then we see Job respond in some of the most poignant verses in all of the book of Job. Please look with me. Verses 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. If you go um, to Billings, Montana, if you go 30 miles like west of Billings, there's this really kind of there's, a, of course, the river, and then there's this kind of park that's out of, in the middle of nowhere. And all, in this park, there's a, this, this rock. And on the rock, there's a signature that says, W. Clark. W. Clark. It's actually the only physical evidence still left of the Lewis and Clark expedition. is on this rock, in this kind of out-of-the-way park in Montana. And this is what Job is saying. Saying, through all my tribulation, all that's going on without me, I want people to know that I was right. That I was okay. That this was injustice against me. I want people to know that I'm okay. I want people to be there for me. I want people to know that what I've suffered and what I've gone through is just not right. And it is hard and it's difficult and I don't deserve this. I want my name to be written down so they will know this is what's happened to me. That my name won't just be wiped out of, so no one will know. People should hear. Obviously these friends don't care, but let people know that I was here. And then he goes on and says, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. Now he goes to tradition. 
A redeemer would be a family member that would stand and protect you when your rights were taken. If your property was taken or you didn't have a line or another kid, that they would come and rescue you. If you read the book of Ruth, you can see this. But here, Job is saying, I want someone in my family to defend me, to stand up for me. I know they are there. I know they live. I know they will tell the truth of what has really happened to me. And then, when my name is marked down, when my Redeemer has come, then I will see God. He will be there. And my heart faints within me. The the Hebrew is the kidneys ended in my chest. (laughs) See, the idea of that his emotions have come up, that he is nothing left, but then it comes up to say, I have given all to know that God is there. I can see Bildad. Give up, man. Your suffering is your fault. Stop arguing. Stop doing it. Why are you continuing to complain? If you just confess your sins, if you just say, God, I did all these things wrong, then you can go back into this equation. But Job says, No. Listen to me. I am pure in heart, I'm not perfect. But God, come to my aid. An innocent has suffered. Okay, let me apply it a little bit more here. Um, when I was, first movie I saw in the movie theater, 1984, Return of the Jedi. Awesome. And in Return of the Jedi, hopefully most people lived in the Star Wars universe here at the church. I mean, it's the first time you really see the Emperor talk, right? And really have some real long conversations. And the Emperor is a scary person. And when I was young, the Emperor was scary. And at the end of the Return of the Jedi, um, you see the Emperor just saying to Luke, you know, as Luke is battling his dad and things like that, Darth Vader, sorry, spoiler alert. Um... (laughs) They were saying, it's over, man. It's over. You've lost. Your friends have lost. Your father is not going to turn. It's over. Just give up, man. Don't you see that your way is not the right way? And then he shows the battle that's happening in space and then it flicks back to Endor and they're all having problems there. You know, all these things are happening. And then as a little kid, you're like, oh my, it might be over. This could be it. But Luke, of course, he says, no, no, never. It's not over. I will never turn to that side. I think there is good in my father. And then when you think all is lost, as Luke might be fading away as the emperor is attacking him, what what happens, right? Darth Vader takes the emperor and throws him down. This long shoot and there's... Oh, it's awesome. Yes, I just equated Luke with Job, the Emperor with Bildad, and Darth Vader with the Kinsman Redeemer. But hear me. You say, that's crazy. The thing is, that is what it looks like. You see, Job is, the French say, it is lost, it is over. There is no one there to help you. Just go to our equation. 
That is where you need to go. But Job instead says, no, I'm going to pursue God. Through my whining, through my laments, through my unimpressive exterior. But through that all, it's going to reveal my interior. It's going to reveal what's in my heart. Reveal what is in me. See, Job just gets a small glimpse of God's grace. Just a small glimpse of the full picture in the idea of a Redeemer. I think Jesus really describes Job well in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Isn't that Job? I will go after you, God. In my suffering, I will come to you. Why are these things happening to me? I will come to you. And in coming to Him, God will reveal Himself to Job. Let me close in the last two verses. Verses 28 through 29 says, If you say, and then he's talking what the Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. How are we going to actually get Job to understand what we are saying? How are we going to tell him what it's all about? Job responds so This is one of the most poignant. Again, verse 29. He says to them, Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. The friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, think that they are the ones teaching Job. But the truth is, Job is giving them wisdom. He is saying at the very end, don't you know, friends, that this equation doesn't work? That the innocent do suffer? There is something called undeserved grace. That when you are found out, you need to say, here is my Redeemer. Because you too, friends, will be found out. You too will be judged. And when all is stripped away, will you say, my Redeemer lives. You see, where Job sees in part, we see in full. Where Job sees this idea of a kinsman Redeemer, we see the Redeemer. This is Him. This is the innocent that suffered. This is our undeserved grace. This is who we cling to. This is a clear picture. Christ's death and resurrection is our Redeemer. So that we say, God, where are you? God, will you answer? God, are you there? God says, here I am. This is my redemption that I've given to you. Cling to this. Will you? I'm just talking to... Oh man, this sounds like an altar call, Dan. This is not just for people that might not know the Lord. How about you? Are you living an equation life with God? Oh, I put in, 
I get back? Are you actually having a relationship with him that says, I need a redeemer. I need you. And when you stand up and you walk forward and you take the bread and the wine, you are saying, I need him in my life. Are you living that way? So if you're not there, if you are not there with the Lord, I encourage you, just sit. You don't have to come forward. There's some prayers here you can, you can uh, read while we do communion. This is not a Presbyterian table. This isn't an Emmaus Road table. This is a table for those that say, I need Christ. And so what we have is we have bread and we have white grape juice on the outside and red wine in the middle. You can come forward, take the elements, and then return back to your seat and we'll all partake together. And I hope it's a time to do business with God. In that time that you're listening to the music or just sitting, maybe you can have that dialogue and lament with God. Maybe through suffering or what you've gone through. Maybe that conversation can happen. Well, let's prepare our hearts, shall we? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. We come to this table sinners, but sinners forgiven. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by His body and blood we are fed. 